Tall cross sticks to be cross. the cross. Um, and a mark is in like mark in Revelation. Uh, sign, signal, monument. May my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. May my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your promise. May my lips overflow with praise for you. Teach me your decrees. May my tongue sing for your word, for all your commands are righteous. May your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, your law is my delight. Let me live, that I may praise you, and may your laws sustain me. I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I have not. Good stuff. Marvelous stuff. Okay, we had... Uh... Uh, we've got a whole list of people that uh, are, we're still waiting to hear good news on. We've had one person that's come to the Lord on it, but we've got lots of people on this list that have asked for just prayers for unsaved family. And so we'll remember them in our prayer. And then we got a couple of prayer requests. I got um, Lisa in Australia is an infection in liver and gout levels are raised. And she's got some terrible sciatica, which is... I had that for a couple of years, and it's the most debilitating thing. It doesn't matter if you stand, if you sit, if you walk. It doesn't matter what you do. You're never comfortable. So poor, poor Lisa will have her in prayer. And then Jeff and Jolene need to find a church in rural Missouri. I think it was Baker, Missouri. It begins with a B. Might be Butler. Butler, Baker. Anyway, I, I should have written it down, and I didn't. But if you're in that area and you know of a, a town, uh, uh, it's directly south of, what is it, um, Kansas City, Missouri. So it's a B, either Baker or Butler, um, if you know of a good church there. And then uh, Joyce is asking for prayer for her mother-in-law's salvation and for a difficult situation with someone named Carol. And uh, so we'll add that in. And then I got something, um, one of my friends, Deanne, sent me uh, an email asking for prayer. And I said, well, is there anything specific? And she sent me a whole page full of just difficult times in her life with family members that don't know the Lord and all that. I'm not going to read it. I told her I'd have it on my desk and that every time it came to my mind, I would just pick it up and say a prayer. But uh, Deanne and lots of family and other issues that uh, uh, are debilitating to her. And I don't want to read them because I didn't get permission to read them. So uh, just keep Deanne in prayer for a lot of general prayers and the Lord knows what they are. And uh, so we'll go ahead and first go to the Lord in prayer over that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to raise up these issues, unsaved people, people with pains in their bodies. We also have some people with some financial difficulties and uh, some other issues out there that uh, we would just ask that you would be with these people and help them to uh, grow in their uh, ability to overcome these things or to uh, uh, accept them if they're physical problems that will not be healed. If you decide that that's uh, uh, what you want for them, then uh, that they would understand that that thorn in the flesh is there by your allowance, that it would be something that they could hold fast to and actually rejoice in, maybe using it to lead other people to Christ or something. And Lord, uh, we also have uh, Deanne and all of the requests that she had on there. And then Lord, we also have the class itself that we need to pray for, asking that it would be a good class, one edifying of uh, believers and in their knowledge of the word 
and that if there's something that is incorrect, that that would be something that would be they would be alerted to, so that they would not be negatively affected by bad doctrine. But Lord, we uh, certainly would hope that's not the case, and we pray these things that you will be glorified, and we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. Belton. Was that? Belton. Belton? I don't think that was it. Maybe. I, yeah, I, I don't know. Okay, he says that's good, and I better open that or it's going to bing again. So, uh, okay. Did you read last week? No, no, I did. Yeah, I did. Um, and then we have, uh, really quickly, it's 28 June, which on Sunday, which means it's 25 June today. And so we'll go ahead and read 25 June, June, this day in Christian history. It says, it all began with King Saul. In the 5th century BC, all the Jews in the world lived under the rule of the Persian Empire that controlled the entire Near East. In 474 BC, they were in a desperate situation. Xerxes was king of the empire, and his prime minister, Haman, hated the Jews. Incensed that a Jew named Mordecai refused to kneel down before him, Haman vindictively plotted to have not only Mordecai, but all the Jews in the empire put to death. As prime minister, he received permission from Xerxes to issue a decree setting a date for the extermination of the Jews 11 months later. That's found in Esther chapter 3. Since virtually all Jews lived within the Persian Empire, this decree was a direct threat to God's program of redemption. The key to understanding this confrontation can be found in the name of Haman's father, Hamadatha the Agagite, which is Esther 3.1. Haman's name indicates that he and his family descended from Agag, the king of Amalek, 1 Samuel 15.20. Thus, Haman himself could be considered an Amalekite. The Amalekites had been the first nation to attack Israel after its exodus from Egypt, and as a result, God declared, I will blot out every trace of Amalek from under heaven. That's found in Exodus 17:14. Later, God commanded Israel, never forget what the Amalekites did to you as you came from Egypt. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies in the land he has given you as a special possession, you are to destroy the Amalekites and erase their memory from under heaven. Never forget this. That's Deuteronomy 25. Years later, Saul, the first king of Israel, disobeyed God and spared Agag, king of the Amalekites, rather than killing him as God had commanded. Because of this disobedience, God rejected Saul as king. Mordecai is described as a descendant of Kish, that's Esther 2.5, who was of the father of Saul. And now, 500 years after King Saul, Mordecai, Saul's descendant, continued to battle the Amalekites. Mordecai persuaded his, co his cousin, Queen Esther, to go uninvited to the court of King Xerxes at the risk of her life to petition him to spare her people, the Jews, from Haman's decree. She found favor with the king, and he granted an audience. The king listened to her petition and grand agreed to grant it. However, since a Persian law could not be revoked, he had to issue another decree. On June 25th, 474 BC, King Xerxes issued a decree granting authority to the Jews to defend themselves against their enemies when the attack mandated by his first decree commenced. The book of Esther thus describes the final chapter in God's holy war on the Amalekites. Haman was hanged on the gallows. He had prepared for Mordecai, and Mordecai replaced him as prime minister. The following year, when the Jews were attacked, they successfully defended themselves, killing 75,000 of their enemies, including all the sons of Haman. 
God's command to exterminate the Amalekites was finally fulfilled. King Saul's incomplete obedience resulted in 500 years of further conflict. What are the examples in your life when you have only been partially obedient to God? What have been the results? We can't make a partial effort and expect a full result. God expects full obedience. Well said. Matthew 28, 20 says, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And let Mordecai is listed in a genealogy under Kish? Yeah, absolutely. You watch, you read the sermons I did. You uh, have forgotten that. Now you need yes, to go I back did. and watch all of the Esther sermons again. <laughs> Gotta start with the first one, and next week I expect a full report from you. Shows I am imperfect, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I wouldn't go so far as to say that. We'll just say that you were nodding off during the uh, Esther sermons. That's, no, yeah, he's he's direct descendant of him, which makes it all the more poignant in the story to follow those genealogies and see these things. But uh, uh, did you get a chance to watch that last week? Was it wonderful or not? Okay, that's for Jim Dwyer. Please make sure he gets that. Bring it here first, though, so I can, because I had to refilm, go ahead, I had to refilm the entire, uh, uh, or not refilm, but re-edit the entire Bible study. So what I said got cut out, so I'm going to say it again. This is a movie called St. John in Exile, okay? It is Dean Jones, who was on the um, uh, Blackbeard's Ghost, he was did the Disney movies, he did a lot of them. He was the love bug, that's Dean Jones. He did a play all by himself without any cuts in the, the thing at all. It's about an hour and a half long, and he did the part of probably 15 people, 20 people. He did individual voices. It is so outstanding that I recommend this to anybody, anytime. You can watch it right on YouTube, full length. You don't need to uh, watch it on DVD, but it'll be better quality here. So that is for you to watch with Linda and then bring back to me so that I can mail it on to the next person, okay? You you cannot help but enjoy it. It is so marvelously done. It is so- He's got a memory like you. He's got the most wonderful memory and he is a strong Christian, which is what makes it all the more poignant because you can see Christ just exuding out of them, can't you? It's marvelous. It truly is so. We got YouTube had some static at times. Yeah, well, it depends. There, There's a couple versions you can watch. One of them got really bad. One of them has subtitles, and that's the one I would watch on YouTube. It comes with subtitles, and it was there were no static in it at all. So watch that one and not the uh, one that... I, I started to watch the one you watched, and it, I, I turned it off because it had some problems. Okay, we're going to get started now into Galatians. We're in chapter 1. Verse 9. So, here we go. One verse 9. Yeah, wherever you want to back up to. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we were an angel from heaven, even if an angel, if we or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. Nine. And we have already said, so now I say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Okay, he repeats himself there. We'll get into the comments in a second. But I've got a question, the three verses that he just read. What is implied in every single one of the verses you just read? I marvel that you are turning away so soon. 
okay? Some, some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. And then he says, but if we are an angel, preach any other gospel we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Okay, and then he gets into verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anybody, what is implied in every one of those verses? That they've gone astray. Well, they've gone astray, but what does going astray imply? Away from the... But what does it imply when you make a decision? You have... You have, um, oh gosh, it's, uh, you've repented. You've, uh, you have free... Will. Free will. That's what I'm looking for. Free will. The reason why this is important is because uh, I, I've said this in the uh, doctrine sermons, and I, I'll say it again, that if you uh, accept a false gospel, which is what we're talking about here, people accepting a false gospel, and then you turn to the true gospel, that improves, that proves that there is free will. If there is a spirit of Antichrist, as John speaks of in uh, 1 John and 2 John, then that proves that there's free will. If you are inspired first by the spirit of Antichrist, and then you come to Christ, and you were inspired by the spirit of Christ, it implies free will. The reason why this is important, I was thinking about this today while I was cleaning the, the bathrooms, and the very first sentence, the very first sentence that's recorded in the Bible, where God speaks to man, Okay, there's other sentences in the Bible, and there's other things that are going on between God and man. But the very first time that God ever speaks to man, it says, um, here it is, verse 216, first time the Lord actually addresses man. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What does that imply? got a choice. He's got a choice. Free will. He says, you're not to do this, but if you do it, then you will surely die. Free will. The reason why I'm bringing this up is because once again, and it's so evident, and as we're going through Galatians, I'm not going to talk about this a lot, but I want you to think about it. Calvinism, which is one of the most preposterous doctrines on the face of this planet, is that we don't have free will. We are regenerated in order to believe, okay? Just follow the Bible. You don't need to be told by some theologian that's been dead for 400 years that was wrong that you don't have free will. From the very first sentence that the Lord speaks to man, and all the way through Scripture, there is not one time ever that you can infer that you don't have free will. Nowhere. Even to the very last page of the Bible when Jesus speaks to the people one last time. Free will. All the way through Scripture. So I want you to keep remembering that as we are going through the book of Galatians. It is one of the most preposterous doctrines that was ever laid upon Christianity. I'm not saying that John Calvin was a heretic. He was just not sound in that particular theology. I have not read all of his writings. I don't know what he said. I don't care. All I know is that the five points of Calvinism are so upside down and backwards that while we are going through Galatians, think about that. Okay, go ahead. Current day Calvinists will tell you that man does have free will, except in salvation that's exactly it's it's completely goofy it is completely goofy to think that god has given us free will and everything except being regenerated in order to believe which we have to first be born again and then we believe and then we call on jesus which is by the way completely misusing scripture but uh, I, the reason why i bring that up is because it is such an obvious tenet which is found in the book of galatians as we are going through here just ask yourself does this that Paul is saying imply free will or does it not? All the way through. 
the spirit of Antichrist proves that we have free will. Because if you call on a false Jesus, you believe a false Jesus like the Jehovah's Witnesses, and then you believe in a, a real Jesus, when were you saved? When you believed properly, not when you believed improperly. There's free will in man's decision, and there is no way around that. It's one of the goofiest tenets that has ever been put forth in Christianity is that we don't have free will. Right from the first page of the Bible all the way through, there is not one verse which supports that doctrine unless you twist those verses to come up with a confused theology. Okay, so 1-9, now that we've gotten that out of the way, there is a great divide between scholars concerning the words, as we have said before. Because of Paul's seemingly great surprise at what has transpired in Galatia, which we can go back and read verse 6, which he just read, it seems to some scholars that it is unlikely that he had any idea that this turning away from the truth so quickly would have been possible. Therefore, the before appears to be speaking about the preceding sentence. And let me read you verse 6 through 8 so you see what's going on. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. And here's my point about verse 8. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Okay? Therefore, the before appears to be speaking about the preceding sentence, which I just read you. In other words, before indicates the substance of verse 8, and what he says in verse 9 is a repetition for stress. However, other scholars look to the structure of this verse and adamantly suppose that he is speaking of a previous warning which is not recorded elsewhere. Vincent's Word Studies, for example, states, not to be referred to the preceding verse, meaning verse 8, since the compound verb would be too strong, and now in the following clause points to an earlier time, a previous visit. What seems the most likely is that the first case is correct. The incredulity of Paul in the opening verses of his letter appears to indicate that he was taken completely by surprise by what had transpired. The repetition for stress, verse 8 and then again in verse 9, for stress is a common means of expression found throughout the Bible. Now, normally I will not go against what Vincent's word study says. He's very intelligent. He does not give commentary so much as he gives studies on words. He says this word here is used in this form, in this uh, epistle. It's used four times by Paul here. He uses it in this way here. He gives you words and he ties them together to show you the harmony of how people used particular words in scripture or when there's a deviation from that, he will show you that. It's always very good information. Even if he's wrong, it's very good information. In this case, I disagree with him, okay? But I normally won't do that. Vincent's word studies, because he's giving you an evaluation of words and not so much opinions, he's usually spot on, okay? But when he gives a commentary like this, you need to evaluate it and you need to think it through. Okay, in Exodus 25, the Lord describes the construction of the Ark of the Testimony. In verse 16, he then says, And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give you. Then just a few verses later, after describing the mercy seat, he repeats the thought with, You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. He just said it a couple verses before. Now, if you want to understand everything that's going on there, I would recommend that you go back and you watch the Exodus 25 sermon. 
you will understand exactly why the Lord did these things in detail. But more than that, I would suggest that you probably should start with Genesis 1 verse 1 and just watch all 130 of the Genesis sermons and then watch the Exodus sermons and then watch the Leviticus sermons and you will develop a theology, understanding what God is doing as he's revealing things slowly. But that's a lot of work. It'll take you a lot of time. Hey, it's only uh, 524 in the evening, 525 in the evening right now. So if you get started now and you just watch all the way through the next three weeks without any breaks, you can probably do it. But having said that, okay, um, he says, after describing the mercy seat, I'm going to read that again. He repeats the thought with you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. This is seen again and again and again in scripture. It is a grammatical device called parallelism. Now, having said that, there will often be reasons why there is parallelism beyond the fact that it's parallelism. Parallelism simply means something is parallel. I'm going to say this. It, the Psalms are full of this. Say this, say it in a different way, but it's the same thought. Okay. Uh, God is righteous. God is a God of justice or something. And he repeats these thoughts. God is loving. God is merciful. That's not really parallelism, but you get the idea. Parallelism is saying a thought and then maybe saying it a different way, but saying the exact same idea. Okay. When he said to put the, the top on the, on the ark first and then put the tablets in there, there was a reason. Go back and watch that sermon after you've watched all the Genesis and the other Exodus sermons, and you'll get to Exodus 25 and you'll get it. Anyway, um, so uh, the Lord used this type of repetition as well in Matthew 18. So we'll go there really quickly. Matthew 18. Matthew 18, and then we got in verse 18, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So he's kind of giving you a sense of parallelism there. The substance of the words changes a bit, as it does now from Paul's pen, but the intent of the words with their accompanying emphasis remains the same. The changes in Paul's words are of substance, but not of intent. And that's what's important to understand with what he's saying here. Eight, but even if we are an angel from heaven, that is the absolute negation of anyone after the original. Everybody got that? He gives that, and that's absolutely negating anyone after the original. Nine, as we have said before, speaking of the original. Nine, so now I say again, emphasis. Eight, preach any other gospel to you from the absolute negation of anyone else. That's what he's doing. He's giving you this form of the way he's speaking. It continues on. Nine, if anyone preaches any other gospel, who would dare, right? Eight, then what you we have preached to you, meaning what Paul originally preached, nine, to you than what you have received, what they received from Paul. And then eight, let him be a curse. That's the stated penalty. Nine, let him be accursed. That's the stated penalty. So you see the parallelism going all the way through there. Eight, nine, nine, eight, nine, eight, I'm sorry, eight, nine, and then nine again as an emphasis, then eight, nine, eight, nine, eight, nine. It's making a parallelism and it's making a point. Okay, so there you go with that, and that helps you to understand why Paul is saying what he's saying there, because when you read it, you think, why is he saying the exact same thing again? And 
scholars especially because they want to know will then think well maybe he said this somewhere else or maybe he's referring to the previous verse and they come up with the logical reasons why or why not vincent's word studies came up with his i'll read it one more time so you understand and he's wrong because if you look at the structure of what he's doing then you can know that he's wrong it says there in um uh, uh vincent's word studies not to be referred to the previous verse meaning eight since the compound verb would be too strong. Well, I just showed you is parallelism. That's why it would be that way. And now in the following clause points to an earlier time, a previous visit. It's not at all. Paul is being exceptionally stressful in his words because of the stressful nature of what's going on in his mind when his own people who had trusted in Christ by grace suddenly fell back on the law. And when you do that, it's going to cause stress to people, okay? This is one of the things that people must understand. If they get into the Hebrew Roots Movement or if any of these other, you know, Seventh-day Adventists, for example, and people start reinserting the law, and they give you a verse which sounds right, and it's not, but it sounds right, that will cause a person who is not theologically instructed properly to start doing something which is contrary to the gospel. And that, in turn, is going to cause stress to the person that led that person to Christ in the first place, or to a person that cares about him for whatever reason. That's my son. He came to the Lord. He was so strong in the Lord. Now he's out observing the law, and he's got curly things on his head, and he's got a little black hat on, and he's acting like, you know, he's under the law of Moses. I mean, all these kind of things will cause stress somewhere. Paul is in great stress and that's why he's doing what he's doing okay having understood that having grasped what is going on life application if you come across difficult passages in scripture there is a whole host of sound resources that you can refer to for an explanation of them if these scholars are at polar opposites which you will see you're going to see that very often if you go to biblehub.com which i read every single day of my life on whatever verse i'm evaluating and also for every verse of every sermon I do, I always have BibleHub.com open. And I'm going to show you how I do it because people have asked me, a couple people actually came to the house from another country. They were in the church here a couple months ago and they said, how do you do your studies? And I said, well, come here and show me. And we ended up talking so much, I never did get to show them how I did it. But I will show you how I do my studies and maybe it'll help you, maybe it won't. I open first the parallel verse on biblehub.com and what that is is we'll say it's john 3 16. it will be a parallel of every version that they have on biblehub.com it'll say so god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life and they'll give it the niv so god uh god so loved the world that he gave his one and only son instead of only begotten and it'll go down every single version including uh young's literal translation it'll give you a couple catholic bibles it'll give you the darby version it gives you 25 or 26 versions of that particular verse. And I read through all of them to see what changes are in there, and then I think through why. The second thing page I do, I've got about 12 pages open on my browser. The second one I do is to open up the Hebrew or Greek. In John 3, 16, it would be Greek. And it's got all of the Greek right there, every single word in the Greek, and it'll have the um, several different Greek texts down below it. They'll have the uh, Alexandrian text up on top and down on the bottom they'll have the textus receptus and you know the uh this several of them five or six of them uh the titian door for whatever 
They're all listed down there, and so you've got to be able to read the Greek with those. The other ones, it's broken down word by word, and you can, you've got the strong number. If you want to click on the word, it'll take you there, and it'll give you an analysis of it. It'll give you the BDB analysis of it, which is the Briggs Driver uh, Brown, um, uh, not concordance. It's um, uh, Anyway, it, it's like a concordance, but it's a word study, and it gives you all their information. It gives you the NAS word study. So you've got all you need from the Greek and the Hebrew right there on that page. First the parallel, then you've got the Hebrew, and then the next page that I will open is the commentary, the main commentary page. And that'll have about 10 different commentators of that particular verse. You know, John Gill would be one of them, and it'll have the Geneva Bible, which is usually very short, of the pulpit commentary and the Cambridge, and you'll have all of these people. But that's not all of the commentators, because some of them won't fit on that page like Adam Clark, they have on a separate page. So I'll open a page for Adam Clark, and then I'll open a page for John Lang, and I'll open a page for um, Kyle and Delich, a, a German people that did a commentary. It's in English, but uh, they originally did their commentary in English. I'm sorry, in German. So I'll open all of these pages, and then what I will do is I will sit down and read every word that those people have to say about those. Even if I'm convinced that I know what this verse is saying, I'm still going to read their commentaries because you can gain valuable insights even from people being wrong. We see that in our sermons. I quote Cambridge from the Old Testament. They're, they're so liberal. Everything they say is absolutely wrong, and yet they have insights that will help you, believe it or not, to understand that passage that these other guys have never even thought of. So it's worth reading even bad commentaries. You don't want to dismiss somebody just be like, don't dismiss John Calvin just because he's, you know, crazy. Uh, read his commentary, and that's also on there, John Calvin, okay? Very infrequently, well, I, uh, and I shouldn't say John Calvin's crazy, but his theology is really wrong in some, some special points, but he's got some good insights and in other points. So anyway, this is what you want to do. If you really want to know the intent of what you're looking at, like this verse right here that we're looking at, uh, 1-9, Galatians 1-9, study it. And it's going to take you, if you do a thorough study of that one verse, it may take you an hour or two hours just to study it without even starting to write your own commentary. But you will now have an idea of what is going on in all of these people's heads. And guess what they have done? They have done their analysis based on, they did it without computers on scholars of their past. And so they have built on the knowledge of other people. And at times they will quote somebody else. They'll quote somebody from 200 years before them, and it'll go back, and it'll go back. And so you have literally on one page, even though you don't have all the information, you have the knowledge of 2,000 years worth of church history. So that is what I would recommend. Let me go back to my life application now, because you know what I do, okay? And I won't go any further than that. That's enough for the studies. I do do other things for the studies, but BibleHub.com is enough to give you a well-rounded bit of information. If you come across a difficult passage in Scripture, there's a whole host of sound resources that you can refer to. You can go to Lagos. You can go to uh, uh, Blue Letter Bible. All of these have commentaries as well. I like Bible Hub because it's very easy to use, and it's got all the information I need. It's got the Hebrew. It's got the explanation of the Hebrew. It's got all of the roots of the Hebrew going back to the primitive root that it originally came from. That will give you information that you're not going to ever find anywhere else. It's good to have. Um, what? Here. Yeah, many. She's got it right there. It's open, and she says there's just all kinds of stuff. One other thing that I will add in, I'll tell you what I do. I have the HAW, H-A-W, HAW Theological Word Book of the Old Testament. 
It doesn't, I can't get it on the internet. I suppose you could, but you probably have to pay for it. But I have a copy of it, a hard copy. And I always refer to that with difficult words. Okay. And so I have to get out the hall and I got to sit there and read all about it. And it's a little difficult to use at first. You have to understand how they organize the words. But once you got it, it's very easy. But the Haw Theological Word Book of the Old Testament will give you great insights into the meaning of words, the use of words. It's kind of like Vincent's Word Studies, except it's Old Testament instead of New. And it's a wonderful resource. So there you go. Read this again. If these scholars are at polar opposites concerning a conclusion, and as I said, they will be, you'll get two very, very sound scholars, Charles Ellicott and um, John Gill. Both great scholars. Love Christ. There's no doubt about it. You can tell the, it, it just exudes out of them as they write their writings. And yet they may come to a completely opposite conclusion. They can't both be right, but they could both be wrong. So there may be a third option that neither one of them thought of. And that's why you might even read Cambridge, who's always wrong, but they'll give you an insight that makes you realize, I understand why they're wrong. And so is John Gill and Charles Ellicott. So it, it, believe me, reading bad commentaries is actually a really good thing to do. I know it doesn't seem uh, intuitive, but it does help you. Okay, so um, when these things happen, they're at polar opposites concerning a conclusion, then you must refer to your own knowledge of Scripture in order to make the best possible conclusion concerning the issue. What is the problem with that? Going to your own knowledge of Scripture in order to come to a conclusion. Well, one is presuppositions, but that would be based on somebody teaching you before you read the Bible. That's a presupposition. I have been taught that John Calvin is correct, and so I'm just going to stick with it. Or I've been taught that it's a mid-trib rapture, or there's no rapture at all, and so I'm going to stick with it. Because they appreciate the pastor that taught them that, they appreciate the teacher that taught them that, and nothing's ever going to change their mind about their, their presupposition. That's a presupposition. The real problem that I was thinking of is that if you are to rely on your own knowledge of Scripture, you actually have to know Scripture. That's correct. Because if you haven't read the Bible at least, at least 50 times, and I mean that sincerely, you are going to be deficient in some area of that. you got to read that book every single day, day after day. I say 50. I threw that out. It could be 20. Some people retain things more than others. I needed to read it 487 before I remembered Genesis 1-1. I don't have a good memory. I'm kidding, of course. But you see what I'm saying. You, you just need to read the Bible constantly. And you need to know the Bible. You need to know where everything in the Bible is, even if you don't remember exactly where you remember it was said and you start looking for it. Because this is a giant book. And so if you're going to rely on your own knowledge of Scripture, you better know Scripture. Okay, so there you go. The more familiar you are with all of the rest of Scripture, because all of Scripture is one woven tapestry, the better chance you will have of coming to the correct conclusion. A perfect example of that, and I'm not saying it's the correct conclusion, but it's a completely different conclusion than any person I've ever read, is our final uh, chapter in the book of Jonah, our final sermon in the book of Jonah. I did that based on my knowledge of all of the rest of Scripture. I stood up here, and before I gave that sermon, I said, I want you to know you're not going to hear this anywhere else, and I could be wrong. And I'm apologizing in advance if I am, because I believe it. I would not have preached on Jonah the way I did unless I believed it. I would not have done that. But it is so far different, isn't it? It's so completely different than anything you're going to read in any commentary that I was actually a little reticent to give that sermon. I, Lord, I lay in bed until the night before and said, am I going to do this, Lord? But I had to because I believe it's correct. 
But that was because I was basing it on all of the rest of Scripture and my knowledge of it. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I'm the one that has to stand before the Lord and do that. But get to know your Bible and never stop reading your Bible. Guess what I did today? Uh, I did that first thing, but I got to uh, my final reading, I mean my morning reading, and I got to uh, Revelation 22, verse 21. And so tomorrow morning I start, Bereshit bara Elohim et Hashemayim ve'et Haaretz. Again, Genesis 1-1. Okay? I love it. I should have started right away, but I thought I've already read a lot and I'm getting a little behind here. Normally that's what I'll do. I'll get to Revelation 22, 21, and I'll read the first chapter of Genesis really quickly because I'm so excited. But today I didn't. I know what it says and I'll get to it tomorrow. But I was, you know, I got to get the day going. Anyway, um, also making diagrams. This is something that is really helpful and comparisons of what is being analyzed may help in the decision-making process. If you make diagrams, if you are a visual learner, uh, one of the things that I did, and it helped me completely, I didn't understand the passage at all, was the um, uh, story where, uh, what's his name, Laban chased after Jacob going back to Padan Aram. I, I'm going back to Israel from Padan Aram, okay? And when he did that, there's a very precise uh, order in which he did certain things. Let me read it to you so you know what I'm talking about, and this will help you understand why we do diagrams. It's going to take me a second to find this particular uh, passage. It's probably about Genesis 30-something, um, uh, 31, 32, 30, um, Esau company, okay? Um, Jacob was on his way, donkeys, okay, 31, okay. Um, it's very precise. If you watch the sermon, it's it, it's very incredible. And then the same pattern follows again later with the naming of the sons of Israel. So I know that what I did was correct because the Lord is giving us a, a second pattern in it. But it says here, um, uh, Laban, and now you have surely gone because you greatly long for your father's house. But why did you, um, uh, Genesis 31, 30, why did you steal my gods? Then Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I said, perhaps you would take your daughters from me by force. With whomever you find your gods, do not let him live. In the presence of our brethren, identify what I have of yours and take it with you. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So he's innocent. He doesn't know what's happened. And now Laban is going to start searching for his gods among the, the company of people. And Laban, listen to how it goes. Laban went into Jacob's tent, and Leah, into Leah's tent, and into two maids' tents, but he did not find them. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. It just said, read it again. Laban went into Jacob's tent, one. Went into Leah's tent, two. And into the two maids' tents, three, but he did not find them. Then he went out of Leah's tent. That's the fourth action, but it comes after the second action. It skips over the two maids. Why did he do that? Why does the Bible say that? Okay, if you want to understand, you've got to go back and watch the sermon. Because I had to diagram it out. I figured it out. It is marvelous in what it's telling us. It's wonderful. But guess what? The naming of the sons of Israel follows the same pattern. So you're going to see this later, or maybe it was before. Maybe it was, the naming was before, but I figured it out later. Anyway, you'll see it in the sermons. They're in order. But that is the kind of thing sometimes you have to do is you have to say, why? Why did the Lord put that in there? Because it's very specific. 
I mean, isn't that bizarre? He goes into Leah's tent, then he goes, Jacob's tent, then Leah's tent, then he goes into the maid's tent, and he comes out of Leah's tent. Why did he do that? Why did the Lord put that in the word? Well, go watch that sermon, and you'll understand what the Lord is trying to tell you. But everything like that has a purpose. That hasn't come to my mind in probably eight years. I, I mean, that sermon's got to be eight years old. And I did it. I remember sitting at the dinner table with Hedico, and I was sitting there like this. It was dinner time. I couldn't eat. I'm just sitting there. And I'm thinking and think. I've been thinking for four days. And finally, all of a sudden, I'm like, that's it. I said, Hedico, I need you to draw a little diagram, which is on the, it, it's on the, the video itself. You, you can see the little picture that she drew, little tents with little flags on them and stuff. And as soon as I got it, I ate. I was so hungry. I hadn't eaten. I couldn't do anything. Do you remember that day? She's shaking her head. I said, you got to draw out this diagram. This will explain why this is happening. Marvelous. Anyway, okay, so draw diagrams. What? No, I'm not going to tell you now. you got to go back and watch it. Okay, no, you can watch the sermon. I get paid for every sermon you watch. YouTube sends me $100 for every view. So, okay, that's not true. We don't monetize our videos. Another thing that you can do, I, I might as well throw this in right now, is called a synth syntactic study synthesis synthesis study i learned that in college and we had to do uh, a uh, synthesis study on a passage of scripture and look it up online what is a biblical synthesis study and if you can't find it maybe i can send you some information on it but it will help you to chart out ask questions of the bible come to conclusions map it out this way and it is a marvelous tool i don't use it ever for my sermons i mean it's just too much you know, it, there's just too much going on. I do the way I do with BibleHub.com. But if you want to understand a passage, you do a synthesis study, and you will have a very good grasp on what that passage is about. When we were told to do a synthesis study, the uh, professor, Beaumont, he uh, said, um, what I want you to do is I want you to send me the passage that you want to do a synthesis study on so that I can approve it. He didn't want you picking something like, you know, Obadiah, verse 27 or something. He wanted, you know, something that's really, really going to challenge you. And so he said, send the passage and I will prove it. And I thought, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to put him on the spot. I emailed him back and I said, Professor Beaumont, I want you to decide what passage you want me to do. Pick the hardest one that you want. And he came back and he said, I've always wanted to know about the head coverings of women. I want you to do that passage. And I've got the synthesis study. If you want it, I'll email it to you. It is completely not what people think. People are talking about all kinds of bizarre things in there, you know, bonnets and this. Listen, it is so obvious what the Lord is, what Paul is telling us. The Lord is telling us through Paul. It is very obvious, okay? Man has long hair. It's a shame. If a woman has short hair, it's a shame and all that. What is he saying? Because who had long hair in the Bible? I'm talking about men. Okay. Samson had long hair. Who else? Uh, John the Baptist was a Nazarite. He wouldn't have cut his... David's boy. Yeah, David's boy. Uh, what's his name? Uh, um, yeah, that guy. Uh, yeah, he had... How much did he sell his hair for? Every year he cut it and he sold it. How much? Come on! But how much did he sell it for? It's very specific in the Bible. They ask that question. I, I mean, 200 shekels. You, you were very close. You are multiple of 10. But there's a reason why 200 shekels is listed there. The number 200 in Scripture will always signify insufficiency. 
So if you remember the meaning of numbers, then you can get what the Lord is telling us about the passage. Absalom. Insufficiency. Absalom. Absalom, that's right, okay? So that's telling you something. I know we're getting out of Galatians, but we're learning about how to study the Bible. Where else is 200 used in the Bible? Just to show you the pattern. Lord, 200 denarii wouldn't buy enough to feed all of these people. It's insufficient. When you see the number 200, it's going to consistently be insufficiency. And if it doesn't look like it, think of why, and there will be a reason. Okay, anyway, let's get back into this synthesis study. Why uh, uh, John the Baptist would have had long hair, Samuel would have had long hair, Samson had long hair, um, Absalom had long hair. So obviously, Paul is making a point about something else, and he's not speaking about those guys violating Scripture. Okay, it's not a shame on their head. All right. It's a wonderful passage, and we'll, we'll uh, talk about that sometime. We already did. We've already done Corinthians, so you have to go back and watch that study. Okay, anyway, let's go on. Um, 110. Okay, before I do that, how many monitors do you have in your computer? Uh, I have two monitors, but I open pages. So the Bible Hub is on the left monitor, and I'll have, uh, like I say, I don't know, 15 pages open there. I've got um, Bible Gateway also. I always have the passage that I'm evaluating because I have to go back and read the whole passage from time to time. What is the context? Because you don't want to get away from context as well. And then I will have another Bible Gateway to search for verses that match. You know, when I say I cite verses in the sermon, we got to go to Romans 8 for that, and we go to Ecclesiastes 3 for that. That's what the other page is there for. So by the time that monitor is done, I've got so many things open on it that it's like this big, and it's a problem because I want to click on that tab, and quite often I'll hit the X, and i got to go open the tab and find that page again. So because they're, they're, they're so small that the X is right there. Anyway, um, but it, it, Mondays are exciting. I mean, they're, they're tedious days, but they're exciting because you're in the Word of God all day long. Okay, Tim. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Okay, this one is completely different. Know, that one says, yes. Well, that one says approval of men. This one says, for now, do I now persuade men? He's saying persuade. They're saying approval. Am I looking for their approval? That's a completely different thought. Or God, do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bond servant of Christ. Okay, there you go. Here, here are the comments. Paul begins this verse with the Greek artigar, for now. The use of the adverb arti, excuse me, rather than the more common word for now, nun, is used to indicate here and now. Exactly now, in the immediate present. That's Helps Word Studies definition. Okay, James Strong says that it indicates to draw close together. For this reason, these words of Paul are probably not speaking of his former life in Judaism, which is just now being contrasted with his conduct in Christ. He has been converted for almost a quarter of a century at this point. He was converted, he did a lot of things before writing to the Galatians, it's been a long time, so he's probably not speaking about that. Rather, he is making an immediate connection with the words he just expressed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. The right now attitude which he is expressing gives the thought of, it is necessary to leave off 
with my usual way of greeting a church in my letter and to be stern and direct, which is exactly what is happening in Galatians because he's been very short in his greeting. He, instead, he went right into the subject matter at hand. You can see how stressed he is, how hugely stressed Paul is at the state of the people in Galatia. He's overwhelmed with it. I mean, he's, he, he probably couldn't write fast enough, or if he's speaking to the scribe, which he certainly is, he probably had to repeat it three times because he's speaking so fast. You know, how do we know he's speaking to a scribe? Because at the very end of the book, it says, um, see with what large letters I have written you with my own hand. Okay, probably that is a final salutation. He's writing that separate from the writing of the scribe who is taking his notes. Okay, so you've got the scribe writing, and then he stops and he writes with his usual large hand writing so that he can show them that, in fact, this is from me. This is from me, and I want you to know that I have dictated this letter, and now I'm signing it so that you can see that. I think anyway. he does that in 1 Thessalonians. Yes, he does. He, he says, which is the mark in all of my letters. Yeah, That's yeah, correct. Yeah. So he does that there and, and elsewhere. You know that, like in Romans, he said, uh, Tertius says, I, Tertius, greet you. So you know he's the scribe that's writing. Okay, so... Um, uh, the right now, I'm going to read that again. The right now attitude which he is expressing gives the thought of it is necessary to leave off with my usual way of greeting the church in my letter to be stern and direct. If the matter weren't so urgent, I would give a happy and friendly greeting. However, at the time, the matter is so urgent that it is just not possible. He's beside himself. He's literally beside himself, and he's saying, I just, I've just, i got to dispense with the pleasantries. I've got to get to the meat of this letter because what is happening is so crucial. It is so crucial that if I don't do it, I'm going to pop. That's probably what he's thinking. And that is what we should feel. When somebody gets stuck in the Hebrew Roots movement, they have been come to Christ, and he's going to give. How did you come to Christ? He's going to ask these questions very soon. What is it that brought you to Christ? When did you receive the Spirit? And so on. And then he's going to give a logical reason why what they are doing is heretical. Not, it's not bad doctrine. Hebrew roots is not bad doctrine. It is heresy. And that is why he has this sense of urgency here. Okay. When I say Hebrew roots, back then they called them Judaizers. Today they call them Hebrew roots. It doesn't make any difference. It is the same group of people with the same appalling doctrine. They are tearing people away from Christ to control their lives, to have them in bondage under them. That is exactly what this this theology does to people okay it's to show how good i am and by showing how good i am i've got my people doing the same thing that i'm doing and that proves that i'm doing good things here see that and that, he's going to use that example exactly that example when we get into chapter two or three so keep that in mind the urgency has prompted him to simply open the letter and move directly into a curse upon those who would attempt to persuade men that's his words, persuade men. The word persuade is not the intent here. However, it is better translated as seek approval of. Paul is concerned about the Galatians looking for the approval of the false apostles, something he was completely unwilling to do. In contrast, he would rather seek God's approval than that of any man. Okay, read yours again, just so people can understand the difference between it. I am now trying to win, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Okay, this one says, for do I now persuade men or God? Paul is talking about seeking approval. 
much better, even though it's the NIV and it's got its own problems. The older NIV, if you're going to read the NIV, I would recommend you don't go past the 2004, um, uh, what do you call it, um, public edition, yeah. Um, right. Go from 2004 and back. If you can get one from 1998, and you can get a brand new, never used, go online and there are people that got one for their high school graduation. They don't want it and they're trying to sell it. They'll sell it for $5 and it was a $70 or $80 Bible back then. Okay, you can find them all the time on Amazon or if you go to Goodwill. Chris, she goes to Goodwill and all these bookstores and she finds Bibles that have never been touched, never opened, and they're beautiful. Gold lined, you know, the gold leaf on the outside, leather bound and she gets them for a dollar or two she's always finding them but if you get an niv go to the copyright that's the word i was looking for the 2004 copyright or older because after 2004 they go pc and they start going ladies and uh you know instead of saying brethren they'll say brothers and sisters there's no need to make the change okay there's absolutely no need to do that in the greek when a person speaks to an audience he always says it in the masculine if there is one male present that's just the way it is. If there's only women present, then he would say it in the feminine. But why change it? Everybody knows what it says, but because they are PC, they started changing. A lot of these Bible versions are doing that. So, but I got to tell you, when it comes to wording, you will sometimes find better wording like you do right here in the NIV. And that's why you read 20 different translations when you do a sermon or when you do an analysis, because there's all kinds of things going on in a single verse of the Bible. Okay, so we'll go on. Uh, Paul is concerned about the Galatians looking for approval of the false apostles, something he was completely unwilling to do. In contrast, he would rather seek God's approval rather than man. In addition to seeking approval, he ne next asks, or do I seek to please men? The false apostles were doing just that. If they were seeking to please God, they would hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Salvation by grace through faith. That was already decided at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. Actually, it was decided at the cross of Jesus Christ, but they just determined it at Acts 15 that that is the gospel message. And then from there, it has been proclaimed all the way through the Bible. Okay? You know, the funny thing is, here Paul is doing this. He's an apostle. He's established his apostleship. He has brought them to, to the uh, uh, saving faith in Christ, and now they're turning away from that. But what completely astonishes me. I could see that with Paul. Paul's a little rough around the edges. Paul saw Jesus later. He might have misunderstood, whatever people might think. But we're going through right now to John, and we're going to get into 3 John. And 3 John, he mentioned somebody named, do you know the name offhand? That's right, Diotrephes. This guy is in the church, and he is speaking against John. Now imagine that. John was there with Jesus through the whole ministry. He is one of the three key individuals that's seen at every key point in Jesus' ministry. And yet this guy, Diotrephes, is in a church and he's speaking against the apostle. And Paul says, I'll take, or John says, I'll take care of that. Okay? But imagine that. The human heart is so desperately wicked that somebody would stand against an apostle that spent all of the time of Jesus' ministry with Jesus. Okay? That shows you how desperately people want to control other people. That's a perfect example to bring in right here because these people are trying to pull the believers away from the simple gospel. Salvation by grace through faith. No law ever again. The law of Moses is done. If we reinsert the law, then it's saying that what Christ did was insufficient. But they're doing that right there at the time of the apostles. Instead, they were seeking to please men through the observance of matters of the law. 
a law which was set aside by the work of Christ. Set aside. Hebrews 7.18, Hebrews 8.13, and Hebrews 10.9. All of them say the same basic thing. It is set aside. It is annulled. It is obsolete. Colossians 2.14. It is nailed to the cross. Christ died on the cross. The law died in Christ on the cross. Okay, we're seeing that all the way through Deuteronomy. We don't even need to leave Deuteronomy to see the typology. Anyway, this leads directly, what we just said, it's set aside by the work of Christ. It leads directly to his final proclamation of this verse. For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Paul had come out of the Old Testament system, the law of Moses. This was certainly displeasing to those who were still under it. But that law was fulfilled. It was annulled. It was set aside, and it was nailed to the cross. I should have just read the next, you know. I, it, you know, we're dull, and we have to have things repeated. I repeat them to myself because I'm dull, and I will forget what it says if I don't do it. And so I repeat that all the time. I'll be out mowing the lawn in front of the mall. I got this big ditch. I have like half a mile long. It's not that long, but it's long, and it's a big ditch, and I got to mow it every Friday, tomorrow morning. Anyway, while I'm out there, I'm repeating things like this to myself. The law is set aside. It is annulled. It is nailed to cross. If I don't do that, I'm going to forget these things. It's a long time to get back to the book of Hebrews from Genesis, right? So you got to meditate on the word of God. Let the word of God dwell in you richly. All these admonitions in the Psalms and in Paul's writings, they're there for a reason. We're not going to remember these things if we don't, okay? This is certainly displeasing to those who are still under the law, but the law was fulfilled. It was annulled. It was set aside. It was nailed to the cross. If he were a men pleaser, he would still be pursuing works of the law, and he would still be teaching others to do those works. Don't eat pork. Don't touch that. Observe the Sabbath. Get circumcised, because by doing that, you have those people under your control. That's where you have them. They're not under Christ's control. Christ has already fulfilled the Sabbath for us. Hebrews 4.3. Now we who have believed do enter that rest. That's right. We have entered our rest. The Sabbath is fulfilled in Christ. The picture is complete. Get circumcised. We're going to hear about that all the way through the rest of the book of Galatians. That's what they would be doing is telling these people to do those things because I have got them under bondage. I have control over their bodies because they will listen to me because I'm the specialist in the law. No, Christ is the specialist in the law and he has fulfilled it for you. Okay, but because Christ has fulfilled those, meaning pork and touching and Sabbath and uh, feasts of the Lord and getting circumcised and all of those other things because he has fulfilled those and established a new covenant. A new covenant can ru not run concurrently with an old covenant. You're either under one or you're under the other. You're not under both. And the new covenant is a covenant of, that's right, grace. Paul determined that he would be a bond servant of Christ rather than being under the bondage of the law. He's under the bondage of Christ which is no bondage at all. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I know I misquoted that, but there you go. He's telling them in advance, when, you, when I have fulfilled everything that needs to be fulfilled, what I offer you is going to be a lot less than what you've been under these past 1,500 years. Okay? And they rejected it. They wanted to remain in bondage. Okay? He had a new master, meaning Paul, and his face was set on pleasing him. There's only one choice that is set before man. We can either please men through some type of work and thus reject Christ, 
where we can follow Christ and willingly receive what he has done, putting aside the works of the flesh. Those are the only two choices for people. You can either be, and I'm talking about people that know the law and that want to be bound by the law or want to be freed from the law. Okay, I'm not talking about, you know, Wang Chung over in China who's never heard of the law of Moses and he's never heard of Jesus. He's under his own type of bondage. He's under the control of the devil. John 1 John 3, 18. Okay, John 3, 18. He's under those, 1 John 3, 8 in John 3, 18. Anyway, but if he finds out about Christ, he can come to the grace of Christ. And then in finding out about Christ, what is he going to inevitably find out about? He's going to find out about the law. And so now he's got the same choice that every other person that's heard of Christ has. Am I going to come to Christ or am I going to observe the law that Christ has fulfilled? Why would anybody do that? I just don't get it. Okay? But it's so easy to get pulled into that type of stuff because they speak Hebrew or because they wear a certain garment or because they, you know, whatever. They came, they lived in Israel. All these things are fallacies. They're errors in thinking which cause us to get astray. All right. Anyway, he wants us to put away the law and come under the grace. Life application Galatians is given to show us the utter severity of not receiving and adhering to the finished work of Christ. It is only through a complete submission to him that we can be saved. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean lordship salvation. What that means is that we have acknowledged our sin and that we cannot take care of our sin debt. When I say complete submission to him, that means that we're not submitting to the law. We're submitting to Christ in order to relieve our sin debt. If we go to the law, we're asking the Lord to look at our deeds under the law to get rid of our sin debt. That's not lordship salvation that I'm talking about. I'm talking about a submission to the completion of your sin debt. Okay? All right. So we must realize there is no work, no work which we can do in order to please God except to receive the completed work of his son. It's that simple. This is why Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. What's the verse? You always get it. I put him on the spot. It's not good to be put on the spot because then you get a, a John 6. Oh, well, you're very close. 629. That's, yes, you're very close. Okay. I didn't mean to do that to you, but I thought you were citing it to yourself. And Anyway, okay, but that's it. You can either, the work of God is to believe on the one he has sent. That's it. That is your work. That is your commandment is to follow what he says after this point, not before. When it says follow the commandments in the book of 1 John, it never refers to the law of Moses. He is never speaking about that. He is always speaking about what Christ said. A new commandment I give you that you... Love one another. That's a commandment of Christ. Okay. 111. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preach is not something that man made up. Okay. This is a little different. It says the same thing. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. I like yours better. Made up. We understand that. According to man, you kind of think, what does that mean? You know, it's, it's kind of formal English. Okay, which the New King James Version was done by a bunch of British guys. And so, you know, they're going to have more formal English than, you know, one of the things my friend Graham over in Scotland has sent me a couple videos by a guy and he's talking about various things in the world. But he's got this great voice. Don't the British, when they speak, it always sounds authoritative, doesn't it? I mean, when Americans speak behind the pulpit, sometimes you think, well, what's he talking about? You know, you kind of question his authority. But when a British guy gets up in the pulpit and speaks, you're like, he really knows what he's talking 
<laughs> just the British, the British accents, the the Scottish and the British and the uh, whatever. They always sound so. Alistair Begg. Anybody here ever listen to him? I love Alistair Begg's preaching. He's Scottish, and he just, it's so wonderful to hear him speak. It just is beautiful. Anyway, okay, Paul is now going to defend the message he relayed to the Galatians. In doing so, he calls them what? What did he open with? Brethren, okay? The word is not without significance. They had departed from the true gospel, and instead of following a false, instead had started following a false one. And yet... He still acknowledges that they are saved. And this is something people will email me and they'll ask about losing salvation. How can I know you're saved and all that? Never. I said it last week. I'm going to say it again today. And I'll probably say it every single time in every Bible study I ever give. Never do one of the apostles question somebody's salvation. Ever. You're not going to find that. And if you send me a verse and say he does here, I'll show you where you're wrong. Because they never question another person's salvation. Okay, these people have shipwrecked their faith. He doesn't question their salvation. He, sh he questions their faith. Okay, big difference. They're already saved. Their faith is just askew. Okay, Peter says that somebody has forgotten that he was saved. He doesn't question his salvation. His faith is completely gone. It's completely gone. And yet he says that he was washed from his old sins. Okay, the term brethren shows this. The correction then is for those who follow. If they receive a false gospel, they will never be saved. I've said this, and I want you to understand it again. I know I said it last week. Heresy and bad doctrine are two completely separate things. If I teach bad doctrine like mid-trib rapture, it's not going to affect anybody's salvation on this planet. Okay? It's not a heresy. It's just bad doctrine. They have not studied the Bible properly. They've come to erroneous conclusions, and they say that the rapture is going to be mid-trib. That's fine. They want to believe that. I'm not going to fight them over it. I'll tell them where they're wrong, and I'll let them go on their wrong way all they want. That's, but if somebody is teaching heresy, that will say cause the next person to not be saved. Okay, That's the difference between bad doctrine and heresy. And what these people are now getting involved in is heresy. Hebrew Roots Movement is heresy. Not for the people that are saved and that get into it. It's for the children that are born into that family that will never hear of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will be raised observing the feast of the law. They will, the feast of the Lord. They will be raised not eating pork because that's what the Old Testament says, etc., etc. That is heresy, and those children will never come to a saving knowledge of Christ through those parents. They may come to it by somebody else at some point. Oh, I'm free from this bondage that I've been in, but they're not going to get it as long as they're stuck in that congregation, okay? That is what Paul is speaking about right here, okay? So, and yet he acknowledges they're saved. The correction then is for those who follow. If they receive a false gospel, they will never be saved. But the salvation of those who first received the true gospel is not in question. Okay? They're saved, and that's why Paul's calling them a brother. That's why he's correcting them. Instead of saying, you're heretics, you're not saved, and now you're going to hell. He doesn't do that. He says, brethren, you need to get your thinking on straight because other people are going to be affected by your poor doctrine. After Paul pronounced his curse on anyone who would present a false gospel, one contrary to the one he first proclaimed to them, he then followed up with, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. That was verse 10. Verse 11 logically follows after that. 
he has shown that his intent was not to seek the approval of men, but rather God. As he was so motivated, he truly was a bond servant of Christ. I have completely submitted myself. I am under my master. He is my Lord. I am going to do what he tells me to do. It was not according to man. Paul's words there, not according to man. This corresponds to what he said in verse 1. And this is the first in a list of arguments that he will make concerning the gospel he preaches. How does he say it again? Not according to man or not made up by man, I think he said. Uh, yeah, not, not made. Not man-made. Man made up. Okay, not something that man made up. Okay, it's just easier to understand. As Charles Ellicott notes of this, he says, The apostle, meaning Paul, now enters at length upon his personal defense against his opponents. He does this by a means of an historical retrospect of his career, proving by an exhaustive process the thesis with which he starts that the doctrine taught by him comes from a divine source and possesses the divine sanction. My doctrine is not human, but divine. It could not be otherwise. Okay, that's Ellicott's commentary on that. Where his doctrine came from will be discussed throughout the rest of this chapter and also in chapter 2. It will not be from his earlier years because he was a he was a Jew, he was a Pharisee, okay? He studied as a Pharisee. And so, it won't be from those who were at, there at his conversion, okay? Because they converted him, Ananias put his hands on him, but actually his conversion came from directly from the Lord. He saw the Lord, Ananias just simply told him, the Lord wants you to pursue him, etc. Instead, it will come by revelation, as Paul says, while in uh, alone in Arabia, okay? He's going to explain that in a, soon as well in the book of Galatians. He went down to Arabia. One thing, I just brought that up, and I may say this during those verses when we get into Arabia, but I'm going to say it now just so that everybody understands this, okay? People say that Paul will say Arabia, which is in uh, Mount Sinai, which is in Arabia. He's going to say that in the book of Galatians. Everybody know that? Okay. We're going to get to it. But I'm going to say it now, and then I'm going to repeat it probably when we get there. But I want to get this out of me. When he says Mount Sinai, which is in Arabia, what have people done for the past 80 or so years? Oh, Mount Sinai is in Saudi Arabia. And they've come up with all kinds of false teachings about the crossing of the Red Sea here and that Mount Sinai is this mountain and here's all the proof. And there's all kinds of videos out there. People waste a lot of money, buy the book. None of that is correct. Okay. If you go back even to a moderately old chart, like 80 years old or 90 years old, guess what Sinai is called? It's called Arabia Petraea. It was all Arabia, all the way up through Israel. Everything was Arabia. But he was making a point that I went down to Sinai in Arabia, meaning Mount Sinai, which is in the Sinai Peninsula, not in Saudi Arabia. So don't buy the book. Don't watch the, the video. It is incorrect. It is. They would have to, if they were to have gone in the Exodus from Egypt to where it says in Mount uh, Sinai down in uh, Saudi Arabia, they would have had to have had a bus take them because they would have, or they would have had to have been full march every day without any breaks, no stop for going to the bathroom or anything else, full speed to get down to there in the time that the Bible allows. It is not correct. It is a poor analysis, but it sells well because it's sensational. Oh, something new. Don't buy the book, okay? It is incorrect. Arabia, 
included. I'll go look at any map. Just type in the word Arabia Petraea, P-A-T-R-A-E-A, I think is how you spell it, and it'll come up right there, Sinai. All right. So when we get there, I'll probably say that again, but I just had to get that out of my head because I mentioned Arabia here and I might die tomorrow and you won't get to hear that. And then you'll go buy the book. Okay. Anyway, uh, instead it will come by revelation while alone in Arabia. It also won't come from the other apostles as he will defend in his words. And he has to be telling the truth because in this book, he refers to Peter. And Peter is fully aware of it because Peter cites his letters in his own epistle. And so we know that what Paul says is true. He did not get his doctrine from any of those sources, including the other apostles, all right? Um, uh, in fact, they were unaware of the scope of Paul's ministry for quite some time. They didn't even know he was out there doing that. They were completely unaware that he had been converted and that he was now preaching Christ. And they had to go and have him, I think it was Barnabas, took him down there and said, hey, this is the guy that was formerly, oh, okay, well, yeah, it's right here then. Okay, so there you go. Um, these points and many others will be seen in the verses ahead. Um, let's see here. Uh, I skipped something, no, that's okay. As the other apostles confirmed his ministry and his apostleship, then it had to have been a gospel which came directly from the Lord. No other source had been a factor in what he preached, and yet he was fully accepted by the church leaders and also by proofs of the Holy Spirit, testified to all the way through the book of Acts and by the other apostles, especially Peter in his epistle. Okay, they confirm his ministry to the Gentiles, and that's something he's going to bring up in this book. It's going to be something that is brought up elsewhere. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. It says it explicitly like three or four or five times. Peter, I think it said twice. He's the uh, apostle to the circumcision. All right. That does not mean there's two gospels. It means that there are two people. Yes, two audiences. One is an audience that Peter is appealing to because they hated Paul. Right? That's evidenced in the book of Acts. And Paul is the one that appeals to the Gentile audience because he could relate to them. He spoke their language. He had been living among them, etc. So there's two audiences, but there is one gospel. Hyperdispensationalism is another heresy. Stay away from that. Okay, life application. It needs to be asserted and reasserted that if the letters of Paul are dismissed by the church, there is no Gentile church. Only he carries the message of our being brought into the commonwealth of Israel. You're not going to find that anywhere else in Scripture. If you dismiss Paul in his writings, there is no Gentile-led church. There is no connection for us to understanding what God has done in Christ for us. And that's why when people dismiss some of these verses and say, well, women can preach because of blah, 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 and they pick all these other verses which aren't even in the context of what is being said, like Deborah, Judges chapter 4, has nothing to do with the church, does it? Okay? We must go to Paul's letters in order to understand what is going on in this dispensation. If we go anywhere else, we are not going to get a full, rounded understanding. We can go to Hebrews and understand certain things about us, but it is a letter not written to us directly. It's written to the Jewish believers, especially the Jewish believers of the end times, but we'll get to that when we get to Hebrews. Okay, so if Paul is dismissed, then Luke must be dismissed because Luke testifies of Paul in the book of Acts. If Luke is dismissed, then the gospel of Luke must be tossed out. And thus the other two synoptic gospels are also in question because they mirror each other and they support each other. Therefore, Peter, I'm sorry, further, Peter speaks of Paul in one of his epistles confirming Paul's letters as scripture. Therefore, 
Peter must be tossed out. If Peter is tossed out, then John and Jude must also be tossed out as their writings are dependent on the truth of Peter's apostleship. Therefore, there is no New Testament at all. There is zero New Testament if you do not hold to Paul's writings, especially as prescriptive. They prescribe church doctrine for this church age. Either Paul is who he claimed he is, or we, I'm talking about Jewish uh, Gentile believers, grafted into the commonwealth of Israel. We have no hope at all if Paul is not true. Zero. There's no hope for the Gentiles. Shun anyone who rejects the gospel which Paul proclaims. And I mean that sincerely. If they question Paul's writings, if they say, well, what Paul says there doesn't really apply because I would never speak to them about doctrine again. Cut them off. He is our authority in this dispensation. Okay, 112, and we'll have time for it. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I had received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Okay, this one says the revelation of Jesus Christ, okay? So, a little different, but almost the same. This verse further bolsters Paul's statement of verse 1 concerning his apostleship which was not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Okay, the words he gives now are to show the contrast between his teachings and those of the false apostles who had come into the churches in Galatia and infected them with the doctrines of mere men. And I'm talking about the false doctrines of Hebrew Roots people, Seventh-day Adventists, and all of these other cults that are out there that are doing exactly what Paul is going to argue against. Exactly. It's not, you know, the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. Man, the wheel just keeps spinning. It just keeps coming up the same thing again and again and again. Go through history and you'll see these same people stepping in and doing the same stupid things again and again. He says it what? Uh, Ecclesiastes 1.9, that which has been will be again. That which has been done will be done again. And there is nothing new under the sun. Okay? That's the way it is. People just keep bringing up the same heresies and we cannot learn. And that's why you have to stay in the word constantly. Okay. Doctrines of mere men. They had first received their false teachings from men or they had made them up. Either way, it's they're false. Either way, the message that those in Galatia had received was of human origin. Paul stood in contrast to this. The neither and the nor of this verse both independently stem back to the preceding verse. If we tie them independently to that verse, the fuller meaning of what Paul is saying can be seen. Now, I'm going to independently tie them together, but I'm not trying to change scripture. I'm just trying to help you to understand what's going on. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, nor was I taught it. See, you take those clauses and you put it at the end of it, and that is exactly what he's doing. He's showing you what he said in the last verse, in this verse ties directly into it. That's what he's showing you. In the first instance, he says that the gospel he preached was not received from man. There was no human origin involved in what he presented to the Galatians. If not human, then it was of divine source. The gospel is not from any human as it had come to you. That's basically what he's saying, okay? In the second instance, he was not actually taught this gospel that he preached as if it was of human origin. The gospel is not from any human as it came to me. So both ways, 
It's not human as it came to you. It's not human as it came to me. It is divine. It came through me to you. It's divine. Okay, there you go. Let's see. Uh, yes, we're on uh, 12. And yes. Okay. Rather, its source was through, as Paul says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul had been converted on the road to Damascus at that time, and then for the next three days, as he waited to be healed of his blindness, he was able to process what had happened, coming to the realization that all of the scripture he had been trained in and knew so well pointed to Christ. After this, Ananias came as directed, and we read, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ananias did not give him any instruction, none, okay? Instead, he simply obeyed the Lord and proved the Lord's message by restoring Paul's eyesight. Even after this, there is no note of human instruction for Paul. Instead, the account simply states the following. Let me take you back there, Acts 9, really quickly. I think we read that a week or two ago, but we're going to read it again. I don't know if that was a lawnmower or a leaf blower, but that was really annoying. Uh, Acts chapter 9, 18, immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the dis disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached that Christ, the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. There is no note of any instruction at all for Paul. He simply meditated on the scriptures that he had been raised with, that he had been trained in, and he realized when he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he put it all together, and he didn't need any instruction at all. He just simply went out and started preaching Christ because he had the foundation, which is the Old Testament, which points to the new. I think it was a leaf blower over at the uh, uh, place where you get your clothes done, uh, laundromat, okay? They keep that place really clean, but man, was that annoying. I couldn't concentrate at all while he was doing that. Okay, let's he, go he on. He was preaching the Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, yeah, I mean, it's right. The whole thing, he just sat there. Think now, he has three days with no no eyesight. What are you going to do? You're just going to sit there and think, and you're going to, all that knowledge he had in his head, knowledge, knowledge, and he's just starting to let it weave, weave into what he saw on the road to Damascus. And all of a sudden, he says it all fits. Everything fits. Imagine that. Three days of just meditating on the word and realizing how horribly wrong he was. Unbelievable. So the uh, tribulation period is those three days stretched out. Oh, yeah. More painful. More painful. That's exactly right. People will have seven years to meditate on what they got wrong. That's exactly right. When Paul was strengthened, he immediately went out preaching the Christ the gospel message. There was no need for him to be taught by a human because the revelation working through the knowledge he already possessed and through the proofs of the encounter with the risen Christ were sufficient to make the gospel known from that point on. Other instances of visions from the Lord are noted as well, but this divine revelation was enough for Paul to understand and proclaim the gospel to others. Before going any further, we're almost done, we're about out of time, we must ask, or ask ourselves, if Paul's words are through the revelation of Jesus Christ, then shouldn't we look for our doctrine in Paul's letters and not from the misguided teachings of others? Right? Shouldn't we? His commission is clearly laid out in Acts. 
If it is an untruthful account, then the entire book of Acts is suspect and it is to be disregarded. However, if Paul's revelation and thus his calling as an apostle is true, then his words must be what the Bible portrays them as, which is the very word of God. Stop listening to people. If you're in the Jehovah's Witness, Witnesses and you've clicked onto this video and you've got a question, don't say, I'm going to go ask the elders. That's every time you put them in a corner, that, that's the first thing they do. I don't know. I've got to go ask the elders. Don't ask them. They've already been deceived. Ask the Lord. Read his word. Figure it out for yourself. Life application. One, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. This is noted several times in scripture. Two, this is now the Gentile-led church age. Three, therefore, Paul's writings are doctrine for this dispensation of time. Right, everybody? That's a syllogism. One, two, therefore, three. Okay? They are prescriptive, and they are to be accepted as such. Should we fail to accept them as he intends, then we also disregard the one who speaks through him. It's all very logical. In theology, one plus one will always equal two. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful words we've seen today. It is such an exciting book to be in. Galatians, is it, it's such a treat to know that we have the surety of knowing what is right and what is wrong. And yet we just keep getting it wrong. And that's because we're not willing to simply read your word. We're going to trust somebody in a pulpit. We're going to trust somebody that speaks well or that has good-looking clothes and a big car. Whatever our, our idol lives in our heart, we're going to trust them rather than simply reading your word. Lord, I would pray that every person here today that is listening would pick up their Bible and read it every single morning, every single day, and every single evening of their life from this point on as a challenge to you that you will illuminate that word to them. I would pray that they would ask it and that you would do it for them if they are willing to pursue you. Lord, we thank you for what the uh, what's happened in the week behind us. We look forward to what's coming in the rest of the weekend, and we look forward to a Sunday without any difficulties and just a happy time here at the Superior Word. And uh, we pray that many people will join us and be edified by whatever is presented on Sunday. We thank you. We love you. We praise you. We exalt you. You are so worthy of it. We do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now he turns the blower off. Yeah, now the blower is off and we can start thinking again. I got to go to break. There we go.